I wonder how you would describe your identity. How would you describe yourself? This morning I want to talk about what makes you, you. You might describe yourself in a number of different ways. I could describe myself as an American with German heritage, conservative politically, evangelical, reformed Baptist who's a husband, a father, a pastor, who loves God, my family, cars, and sports. Just to name a few. How would you identify yourself? I'm sure it changes during different seasons of life. Maybe you're the goofy grandpa during this season. Or maybe the serious student. Maybe you're the politically active or the politically indifferent. There are so many factors, aren't there? So many priorities. So many ways to try to piece together what makes you, you. And regardless of how you'd answer that question, I think that for many of us, probably most of us, we have a similar desire. And it was expressed one time this way. I've always wanted to be somebody. And I've always wanted to be part of something significant. We want to be significant beyond ourselves. And we want to be part of something greater than our own experience. We want to be, everybody I think wants to be part of something bigger than just their own little pocket of life. Can you relate to that? And as a result, we divide ourselves into groups or categories or identity groups based on our self-perception, based on our interests, based on our priorities. And as a Christian, I think this is really important. What does your relationship with God through Jesus Christ mean for who you are and how you fit in in this world? Because right now we live in a time, all you have to do is turn on the news or the radio, we live in a time and a place where there are so many voices that are seeking to define the identity of us as individuals and the identity of our group as Christians. There's never a shortage of public opinion, is there? Or public service announcements about how churches should act <laughs> or how the world should view you. And this leaves a lot of people confused. It leaves a lot of people left wanting. And with so many voices, it is really good to know that God is clear. And that is the message that I want to encourage you with over the next couple minutes this morning. And to do so, I turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. The verses will be up on the screen. Just follow with me as I read. Peter is writing to exiled Christians throughout, throughout the European continent, and he says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a, corner, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Who are you as a group of people? And how does this relate to living today as an exile, spiritually speaking, in this time and in this place? Well, Peter starts in verses 4 through 8, and he says that your faith in Christ will bring you shame before men, but honor before God. If there's one thing I want you to take away this morning, it's this truth right here. That your faith in Christ will bring you shame before men, but it will bring you honor before God. Because when you realize that category of thinking for your life, it sets our expectations. It even may sound difficult to us originally, it should, but this reality, in fact, is very, very encouraging. Your faith in Christ will bring you shame before men, but it will bring you honor before God. And we see in verses 4 and on that Jesus serves as the example of this, and our lives as Christians in many ways mirrors his life. Jesus is referred to as the living stone that's rejected by men, but precious to God. And you who believe in him are called living stones who emulate the living stone. And so notice the pattern. Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but precious to God. Likewise, you, living stones, rejected by men, but precious to God. In verse 7, we see that you who believe in him are honored by God, and those who don't believe in him are actually rejected by God. That's pretty straightforward words, isn't it? And it kind of brings you to this place where every person in one way or another comes to a crossroads. In a very real sense, the passage is asking, Who do you want to be honored by in this life? 
and the next. Is it more important for you to be honored by people? Or would you rather be honored by God? There's no neutral ground, it seems here. Each person comes to this point of having to make a decision, this crossroads, and what you believe regarding Jesus is the decision point. Is he really God's son? Is he really the perfect sacrifice? When you believe in him, are you truly forgiven? Is he worth following for the rest of your life? Or does that notion cause you to stumble in some ways? Is it, is it just enough to say that he's probably a good teacher or an important person or a really nice guy, but not the son of God? Not the cornerstone of God's plan for everybody in the world? And certainly not able to forgive my sins if there is such a thing. If you choose the latter, you will go through life accepted by men and women as a really nice, affable, tolerant person that nearly everyone can get along with. As long as you're not a jerk. But you need to know, if you go that route, you will, on the inside, feel spiritually empty. There is always a sense in which the external praise of men will not be enough. You will want more. But if you choose the latter, or the former, excuse me, that belief in Jesus and thus you give your life to him, there will be times in this life, Peter says, when you will be rejected by men. They won't want to hear what you have to say. There will be a relational cost. But in the end, you will be honored by God. And so let's explore that a little bit. Verses 6 and 7. Shame and honor. What does that mean? And how does that work its way out? Verse 6 says that you, those who believe in him, will not be put to shame. In verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but to those who disbelieve, there will be a stumbling rock of offense. Honor and Shame. To be given honor means to be valued, doesn't it? It means to be respected. It means to be revered. To be shamed is to have your honor taken away. To be dishonored. To be disrespected. To be devalued. So they're the opposite sides of the same coin. As I've come to know many of your situations, I know that for some of you, you have been shamed for your faith, and for the lifestyle that you choose to live. And shame is simply the removal of honor. Some of us have experienced being treated differently from family or friends. Maybe you've been labeled church folk, Bible thumpers, super spiritual, the one that is quite boring in your outlook on life. There's a lot of different examples. Or often it just could be that people stop inviting you to participate in certain things. 
They used to honor you. But now there could be an active or maybe even just a passive shame attached to you because of your faith. And Peter says, if you are experiencing that reality in life, that's normal for those people who are living in spiritual exile. And it hurts, and there's nothing fun about it, but it is something that you should probably expect. Because the gospel costs something. And sometimes it costs us relationships. When his earthly family attempted to divert Jesus from his mission, he said very clearly in Mark chapter 3, that those who do the will of his father, those are the ones who are really his mother and his brother and his sister. And in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says that because of the gospel, because of this news of sin and repentance and grace and mercy and salvation and relationship with God, that families will turn against each other, that brothers will turn their brother into the authorities and fathers will turn in their children all because of the nature of this message. When you put your faith in Christ, friends, you're at a crossroads, and it has implications for the relationships around you. It costs you something. And that sounds hard, and it sounds like really bad news. But let me turn the tone a little bit to say this. What it costs you right now pales in comparison to the benefit that you receive. It is not even close of a trade. You gain honor from God himself. Now that might sound like a big deal to you or it might not, but let's try to put it in perspective. Let's say, for example, that you receive honor or compliments regarding how you can sing. Maybe it's from the person that's sitting near to you this morning. And they heard your voice and they say, wow, you have a really good singing voice. I, I, I'm really impressed by that. And that makes you feel good. And it's exciting in some ways to you. But at the end of the day, it's a fleeting reality. But if you receive honor or a compliment from somebody who's a very well-known singer, pick your favorite, Michael Buble. Now that honor or compliment probably means something much, much more because Michael Buble really knows how to sing. And to express honor from a guy like that, wow, that sticks with you. If you receive a compliment on your job performance from one of your coworkers, that is encouraging to you. It's nice, it makes you feel good, and it's great to have the respect of one of your coworkers. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't do a whole lot for you. But if you get to the end of a project and the president of your company calls you up out of all of the hundreds of employees in your company and he says, hey, I just wanted to call and say to you, you did a great job. Thank you so much for your hard work on this project. Now that sticks with you. That is significantly meaningful. Why? Well, because not only does this man know the business inside and out, but he has the power to do something significant 
that is attached to that expression of honor. And so when you think about 1 Peter chapter 2 and the contrast that he's setting up, if you receive honor from other people in this life, that's great. It's significant. It makes you feel good. But if you receive honor from God Himself, the one to whom all glory and honor is due, the one who has the power and the authority to express that honor to you in significant and eternal ways, the one whose relationship with you is not just temporary for a season of life, but is eternal in its nature, that is worth more than anything else in all of the earth. If the one who is worth the most gives you honor, then that honor is necessarily worth more than anything else that you can receive during your entire existence on this planet. It's worth more than my reputation. It's worth more than my relationships. It's worth more than temporary pain or difficulty. Because of your faith in Jesus, you will receive honor from God. But you will receive shame from men. And just like Jesus, in this way, our lives as Christians mirror His life as Lord. And so be encouraged today. Be encouraged that honor from God is the most valuable you can receive. We see in verses 4 or 5 what some of that honor looks like. Look at your scriptures with me. It says that you are, you yourselves, verse 5, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter gives two pictures of what this honor looks like here. A spiritual house and a holy priesthood. A place and a people. The first picture is an allusion to the temple itself. In the Old Testament, God would dwell in the temple. This is where people would go to worship Him. And this is where God was said to reside. He didn't have to be there. He wasn't confined to that place. But He chose for His presence to rest there. And Peter says that God no longer dwells in a physical temple. Instead, Christians, you are the spiritual house now. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3.16 illustrates this as well. When Paul writes, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And so notice the nuance here. He's not talking about each and every one of you being an individual temple, at least not in this instance. I'm not looking at some hundreds of spiritual houses right now. He's talking about each of you being a piece of this spiritual house. 
And the whole of you together makes up the place where God dwells. Puts a little different spin on coming to church, doesn't it? Or being the church. And how we engage in that reality. The second image, verse 5, is that for those of you who put your faith in Jesus, you are called a holy priesthood. The first was a place. This is a people. In the Old Testament, what does a priest do? Well, a priest is the one who leads the people of God in worship and offers sacrifices to God on their behalf. People did not have direct access to God, but the priests did. And so Jesus comes. He's the true and eternal high priest. He's offered the perfect sacrifice to God for the forgiveness of sins. And we see in verse 5 that now, as a result of that, you are a holy priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices. Have you ever thought of yourself as a priest? If you're a Christian here today, just oblige me for a moment. If, If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, just raise your hand right now. And now look at the person next to you or behind you and look at them and tell them, you're a priest. You guys are priests. Did you know that? You have direct access to God. You don't need any earthly mediators to have a relationship with him. You can confess to God directly. You can praise God directly. You can Give spiritual sacrifices to God for yourself and for the people next to you. The people of the church have become the place of God and the people of God in the world. You want to do something important with your life? You want to be part of something bigger than yourself? If you are a functioning Christian in the context of a local church, then in God's eyes, you are a part of the most significant, most important, most valuable organization, group of people, category in the planet. Your faith in Christ will bring you shame before men, but it will bring you honor before God. And Peter turns the corner, and let me close this morning with just a little description of what that means for who we are right now. Verses 9 through 12, Peter gives a wonderful description for you, Christian. He says in verse 9 that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He uses four terms. You're a chosen race. That means you are now part of the common lineage of the people of God. That God's people are no longer defined by their ethnic terms. They're defined through faith. And this connects you to the people of God, all of them throughout history. Your royal priesthood, priests that are in service of the king. You're a holy nation, 
a large group of people connected to each other that are set apart for purity and for purpose. And you are a people, it says, for God's own possession. That the king of the universe who values you and honors you and lifts you up, uses you for the sake of his glory. If you're a Christian, your identity is not primarily as a white person or a black person or a brown person. If you're a Christian, your identity is not primarily rooted in being a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, though that is true and important. It is not primarily rooted in being an American. or being a Korean, or being a Mexican, or any other nationality. If you're a Christian, and this is really important right now, if you're a Christian, then your identity is not primarily as a Democrat or a Republican. And so don't act like your primary identity is one of those categories. Don't be confused. You are part of something so much bigger than that. You are the people of God. Where He dwells. And who have access to Him. And the purpose of being this people is many. But we see here that one of these purposes is to proclaim the excellencies of our Father. And so verses 10 through 12 tell us to live in a way that does just that. As someone, live as someone who's experienced the most excellent gifts of God and who's promised even more gifts and proclaim them. This is the core of your identity as a Christian. Your faith in Christ will bring you shame in this life. It will bring you shame before men. But fear not. It will bring you honor before God. You've always wanted to be somebody. You've always wanted to be part of something bigger than yourself. And God says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you did not receive mercy, but now you've received mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Help us to see and to know and to feel the nature of our true identity and to live accordingly. We praise you today. Amen.